Last Sunday, I contrasted the early church with today's church, and I asked a simple question. What happened? And I was talking about the exponential growth of the early church, as told in the book of Acts, compared with the decline of today's church. What happened? I mean, how could a movement that was so irresistible in the first century become so easily resistible in the 21st century? What changed? And is it possible for us to reclaim whatever that was so that we can still experience the same spirit-infused energy in today's church? That's what this entire series is about. I do need to clarify one thing. Somebody sent me an email about it earlier in the week, and I thought they made an excellent point. When I talk about the decline of today's church, I'm talking specifically about the American church. There are parts of the world where the church is growing. South America, Africa, Asia. Christianity is on the rise in those areas. But in America, Christianity has gone more the way of Western Europe. Our culture, our society, our history, our laws are all based upon the beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. But fewer and fewer of us still believe and practice the Christian faith. In America, we've entered what scholars call a post-Christian era. It's different than an unchristian era. It's it's very different than an unchristian era. A post-Christian society versus a non-Christian society. The difference is, it's not that people have not heard the gospel. It's that people have heard the gospel and they've rejected it. Or worse, as John O'Sullivan says, they've forgotten it. We're talking about people who grew up in church. Their families were Christian. They attended Sunday services. They did their Sunday school lessons. They read their Bibles. They went to VBS. They said their prayers. They were believed and they were baptized. But at some point along the way, they chose to give it up. Why? As I said last week, not because of Jesus. This is the surprising thing about the research. The Pew Research Center talks about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the people who mark none when they're asked their religious affiliation. They've been tracking this since 2007, and it's been growing every year in America. But in the nuns, they still believe in Jesus. They still like Jesus. They still pray to God on occasion. I mean, I guarantee you there are people who haven't prayed to God in the last two or three years, but they have prayed to God in the last two or three weeks. So there's still opportunity there. When I talk to people that have left the Christian faith, I very rarely hear them say anything disparaging about Jesus or His teachings. What they can't stand is the church. Now, I know logically that doesn't make sense. It's like a person saying, you know, I like you as a person. I just can't stand to be around your body because the church is the body of Christ. I mean, logically, that makes no sense whatsoever. But emotionally, it makes perfect sense because even those of us who are still in the church have experienced some of those feelings. And people we love have experienced some of those feelings. But think about the people you know. Think about people that you grew up with in church, or, or, or friends, or acquaintances, or, or your family. Think about your grown children, people who, for one reason or another, chose to walk away from the Christian faith. What reasons do they give for that? And do they have anything to do with Jesus and His teachings? More often than not, 
they don't have anything to do with Jesus or his teaching. Very rarely do I talk to somebody that says, well, I'll tell you why I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because that whole love one another thing. I just, I, I think that's a stupid idea. Or I'm not a Christian because of treat one another in the way you want to be treated. I think that's dumb. Or I'm not a Christian because, you know, somebody gave his life for me, loved me enough to give his life for me. That's why I'm not a Christian. People rarely reference Jesus. Instead, what do they talk about? What do you hear? They say things like, well, the whole creation versus evolution debate, I just can't wrap my mind around a six-day literal creation. I just can't reconcile faith with science. Or the historicity of the flood account, or the parting of the Red Sea, or the miracles. I just can't see how do the miracles work, and how do they play in all of that. Or the Old Testament stories of violence. I mean, there's some stories in there where God seems to approve, or, or worse, perpetuate violence and I just I can't seem to reconcile faith with that or the contradictions that are evident within the Bible or the legalism and rule keeping of the church that I grew up in the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy the judgmentalism of Christians the people who who treated me in that way when they were supposed to be followers of Jesus I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've left the Christian faith, and I've read books from people who've left it. I've read articles and blogs from people who left it. And very few of them ever cite Jesus as the reason. Because they had a bad church experience? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of those. Because they got burned by legalism? Yep. Because they experienced some self-righteousness and hypocrisy? Yep. Because of the prosperity gospel? Yeah. Weird teachings of churches? Uh, yeah. Distortions of the Bible? Yeah. I mean, the list is endless, but it rarely has anything to do with Jesus. Now, if somebody said to me, you know, I'll tell you why I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, well, that's a good reason not to be a Christian because the, the core of our faith is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or if somebody was to say, I'll tell you why I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I don't believe in the resurrection. All right, that's a good reason not to be a believer. Because the resurrection is the center stone. The resurrection is the thing that affirms for us that Jesus is who he says he is. If the gospel is stripped of the resurrection, then the gospel ceases to be good news. And I, I just, that's not just me saying that. That's not just Russ's opinion of how important the resurrection is. That's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. I read all those testimonies last week out of the book of Acts. But Paul says, if that's not true, then we're false witnesses. We're liars. If he did not raise him, in fact, from the dead, then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And listen to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. For only in this life we have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, Paul got it. The resurrection is what matters. It is the keystone, it is the cornerstone of our faith. It's why he preached it in the book of Acts. It's why he referenced it in all of his letters. It's why Peter preached it. It's why John preached it. It's why James preached it. That event changed everything. It changed everything about the faith of those disciples, but it changed everything about the faith 
of the early church. The early church exploded in response to the truth of the resurrection. And that's the thing that we have to reclaim as believers. Because it didn't just change what they believed. It changed what they did. It changed what they practiced. If Jesus is who He says He is, and I believe that because of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who He says He is. And if Jesus is who He says He is, then I'm compelled to follow Him. Here's the way Paul put it in the book of Romans. Back in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, he said it this way. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If the resurrection is true, it doesn't just change what I believe about Jesus. It changes my obligations to Jesus. I have an obligation to no longer live according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. There is a direct correlation between resurrection and discipleship. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up just a minute and talk about what I mentioned I was going to talk about last Sunday. Last Sunday I talked about this new movement that Jesus started. It it was the church I was referring to. But I also talked about the new covenant and the new command that were part of that new movement. So so let me back up and and talk about that first one for just a little bit. Um, Can you imagine this? Like, Can you imagine this year in December... Like right before we start the Advent series, right before we start to our celebration of the Christmas season, imagine that I stand up before the church and say, Church, I have an announcement to make. It's very, very important. I want everybody to listen. Please pay attention to me. I haven't cleared this announcement with our elders or anything like that, but I want to tell you about something that's going to forever change the way we observe Christmas at Murray Hills. This year and every year hereafter, instead of celebrating the birth of Jesus on Christmas, we are going to celebrate my birthday. (laughs) What would your reaction be? I I imagine some nervous laughter. I imagine you start looking at your spouses like, is he being serious? He's got to be kidding. But what if you figured out I wasn't kidding? I was being serious. What would your reaction be? Well, one, you'd probably try to get out of that service just as quick as you could. As soon as you found an excuse to get out of that service, you'd be gone and you'd never come back to that church again. Or you'd be outraged and you'd be calling the elders and saying, you've got to do something about this. I can't believe... Can you think of anything more offensive than me changing the meaning of Christmas and making it about myself? All I'm trying to do is give you a little sense of how the Jewish people might have felt when they first read the accounts of the historian Luke who told the story of Jesus. And one of the stories he told is in Luke chapter 22. If you've got a Bible there with you, go find Luke 22. Because Jesus says something offensive in Luke 22, and most of us skip right over it. Jesus is observing what we call the Last Supper or the First Communion. What was actually going on was Jesus was observing the Passover with His disciples. And this is just 
hours and days before he goes to the cross. And so Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to make preparations. I want to observe the Passover with you. The Passover is one of the festivals that was commanded the Jews to follow in the law. And it was commanded they follow it as an act of remembrance. When they observed the Passover, and arguably it's probably one of the most important festivals, but when they observed the Passover, they were to remember the deliverance that God gave them out of slavery, out of Egypt, by passing over the home of their firstborn and sparing their lives. So it's an incredibly important act of remembrance. It's something that their, their scriptures commanded them to do. And Jesus, in verse 19, said something... Well, verse 20 is actually where he says it, but I'm going to read 19 and 20. He says something just earth-shattering. And most of us completely skip over it. A lot of times we read it every single Sunday and just skip right over it. But if you were a devout Jew reading this for the first time, it would be incredibly offensive. The first thing Jesus says in verse 19, it says, He took bread at this meal, He gave thanks, and He broke it, and He gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But wait a minute, Passover is not about you. Passover is about God delivering us out of slavery. And Jesus redefines this and reframes this. And then after the dinner, verse 20, it says in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, did you catch the offensive statement? Are you, are you outraged by what Jesus said in verse 20? Are you offended? Are, are you confused? Jesus reframed and reinterpreted a meal pointing back to one of the most pivotal points in Jewish history. We don't mess with Christmas. And Jesus had no best business messing with the Passover unless something better was coming. Unless something bigger was coming than Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Something more life-changing, something more far-reaching, unless a new covenant was being established and the Passover forever being redefined. Those two words that Jesus said in verse 20 were new covenant. They carry incredible implications for us. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar that there's an old covenant as well. In Genesis chapter 17, God made a covenant with Abraham, promised you know, that he would make him the father of, of many nations. But the one you're probably even more familiar with is in Exodus. Really, the, most of the book of Exodus tells about the Sinai covenant. And it was the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And you're familiar with this because you've heard of the Ten Commandments, you've heard of Moses, you've heard of Mount Sinai, you've heard of the Golden Calf. That's all part of the Sinai Covenant. And it is a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. It was a specific covenant in that it was a specific covenant with that nation. No other nation was included in the covenant at that time. It was a conditional covenant. And that God said, if you obey and follow these rules and keep your end of the bargain, then I will keep my end of the bargain. If you obey, then I will bless you. If you disobey, then I will not. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we read stories of the successes and failures of the nation of Israel in the keeping of that covenant. It was also a temporary covenant. 
it had a lifespan. It would eventually come to an end. It would eventually be replaced and fulfilled. Even the Old Testament itself prophesies this. In the prophet Jeremiah, verse 31, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them by the ham and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant I will make the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be thy God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the greatest of them to the least. So Jeremiah prophesies about this new covenant that is going to replace the old covenant. And then in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, I am the new covenant. What I'm doing, what what you're going to remember every Sunday from here on out as you take the cup and as you take the bread, you're going to remember this new covenant that was established through my death, burial, and resurrection. This is absolutely incredible. And it's different from the old covenant because this covenant isn't between God and a man. It isn't between God and a nation. It's between God and the human race. Everybody is included in this covenant. Every tribe, every nation, every gender, every people group, for every generation. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And when he fulfilled it, he completed it. The new replaced the old. Now, not surprisingly, some of the devout Jews had a problem with that. What he said was offensive. It was outrageous. Even people who were followers of Jesus, Jewish Christians, had a problem with what Jesus said. They had trouble wrapping their minds around this concept of a new covenant and Jesus being fulfillment of that. There were flare-ups early in the book of Acts. You know, Peter had the flare-up where he didn't want to take the message to the Gentiles and God had to send the sheets down and with the unclean animals and say, Arise, Peter, kill and eat, because Peter's wrestling with this old covenant way of thinking. Paul had the conflict in Acts chapter 15 because he's spreading the message to the Gentiles and there's this whole blow-up that happens there. There's entire books of the New Testament that were written to address this problem. The book of Gentiles and the book of Hebrews specifically. And Hebrews puts it as clearly and concisely as possible. If you've got a Bible, go find Hebrews chapter 8. And here's the way the writer of Hebrews put it. Beginning in verse 6. He said, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31. We read that just a minute ago. So the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 and then he concludes in verse 13 by saying, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay. So what? I mean, what's the big deal? 
right? What does any of this have to do with where we started the message? And, and where did we start the message, by the way? Like, what, what are we talking about? Why does any of this matter? Listen, I, I know it's a little confusing, but hang with me for just a minute. Some of the early Jewish Christians struggled with this concept of a new covenant fulfilling and replacing the old covenant. And so what they struggled with was the mixing and matching of the covenants. And so therefore they made demands on the followers of Jesus that Jesus never made himself. They complicated and confused the simple teaching of Jesus. They complicated and confused the salvation of Jesus, the simple death, burial, and resurrection because they mixed and matched the old and new covenant. One of those groups was called Judaizers. And a Judaizer was, was Jewish Christians who believed that in order to be a Christian, yes, you must accept Jesus, but you also must do fill in the blank. You know, at the time it was circumcision. You know, but for years since then, we don't have Judaizers anymore. But Christians, any of you who grew up in church know this, Christians have had no trouble filling in the blank. We've had no trouble saying, yeah, if you want to be a true believer, then you must follow Jesus and fill in the blank. You know, if, if you want to be saved, then yes, you must believe in Jesus and fill in the blank. I mean, we've been doing this for years. And you remember what I said earlier about your loved ones, people that have left the church, because, not because of Jesus. Did it have to do with Jesus or that and? Did it have to do with what we put filled in the blank with? I think most of us would say it had to do with what was in that blank. And so the question I'm asking, and we're going to try to answer it next week, is, is Jesus really enough for us? I mean, is, is, he re- is it enough for us to simply live under the terms of a new covenant? And what does that look like for us? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we resist the temptation to mix and match the old covenant? How do we resist the temptation to say, no, 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 it's Jesus plus fill in the blank? How do we resist the temptation to fill in the blank and simply let Jesus alone carry the weight of our message and our faith and our beliefs and our practices and our churches? And why does that matter? And what's at stake? We're going to talk about all of that next week. The message is called uh, The Bible According to to Jesus. Now, some of you know, I think I mentioned this last Sunday, that the source material for this series, I'm using a book by Andy Stanley called Irresistible. It's kind of my jumping off place for the series. I'm not stealing his sermons, but I, I did kind of use the book to inspire what we're talking about in this series. And uh, the book has created a lot of controversy. Like, you don't have to do just a short Google search, Andy Stanley Irresistible, to see a lot of controversy generated by the book, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with a little controversy because controversy forces us to think for ourselves. It forces us to go to the scriptures and examine them for ourselves and determine if what we are hearing lines up with the word of God. So I'm okay with that. But I want to tell you that next week's message is probably the most controversial part of the book. And I don't agree with everything Andy says, but I think he asked some questions that we need to wrestle to the ground if we're going to reach this post-Christian society with the good news of Jesus. So I want to ask for your prayers as I study this week, and I'm praying for you 
as you study, maybe you meet in your small groups and discuss some of these questions uh, in your small groups. And I look forward to seeing you next Sunday. As we did last week, we're going to leave the live stream up for a little while. One of the things we loved last week was seeing, you know, 10 minutes after the service ended, there were still 50, 60 households on the live stream and you guys were still chatting with one another. So we're going to leave that up for a little while. But I hope that you will join us next Sunday, same time, same place, here on Facebook and YouTube at 930. And we'll continue this study of what we can do to reclaim the irresistible message of Jesus in the 21st century.